So please open your Bibles, if you've not, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 2 through 16, as Chris read for us. And growing up, and, and really even to this day, I love hats. I wear hats. Uh, currently, uh, I am rocking a dark gray Patagonia ball cap. Like I, my hats, I typically are like ball cap style or like a stocking hat. I'm not like some of you cool guys that can rock a fedora. That just isn't me. If you saw me in a fedora, you would laugh. But I, I love hats. They're, they are fun to wear. They, they can make an outfit. But here's the thing that we understand about hats, and those of you that wear them, I, I think you know this, that in order for a hat to really work and really make an outfit, it's got to meet the occasion. It's got to be appropriate to the occasion. Like wearing a ball cap at a sporting event or just in a kind of casual situation, hanging out with friends, watching a game, that's appropriate. Wearing a ball cap to a wedding is not appropriate. Don't be that guy. Seriously, don't be that guy. (laughs) We recognize that a hat in that circumstance, at least that kind of hat, would not be appropriate. And so for for us recognizing that particular clothing carries particular meaning in certain social situations, and if you consider it, those of you that are in the military, you recognize this, like you have hats that you wear with different uniforms, like one for your fatigues, one for your dress blues, and if you were to wear the fatigue hat with the dress blues, that would be inappropriate, it wouldn't fit the occasion. And so there are ways in which we signal occasion and meaning through our dress. It's not neutral. We may think dress is neutral. If you think it's neutral, try this. The next time, guys in particular, next time you're going to go hang out with your buddies and watch a game, show up in a tuxedo. (laughs) If dress is neutral, it wouldn't be weird, right? No, it, it, it would be weird because it doesn't fit the occasion. Dress needs to fit the occasion because dress communicates certain things. Now, we recognize this is culturally bound. Okay? What a hat means in one culture doesn't necessarily mean the same thing in another culture. So completely recognizing that there are aspects of culture that are bound up in this, and we're going to see that this morning. But that doesn't eliminate this truth that we signal particular things through our dress. But what's more important than the particular article of clothing, the hat or, or the shirt or whatever the outfit may be, what's more important than the article of clothing is the meaning. It's the thing underneath the thing that we need to consider. It's not necessarily the specific hat or article of clothing, but it's the honor that is either shown or not shown by wearing or not wearing that article of clothing. More so than the cultural practice is the truth, the good thing that we should honor. And that, friends, is what's underneath our passage this morning. This isn't a sermon about head coverings, as much as we're going to talk about head coverings. If, If you thought we were going to resolve the issue of head coverings this morning, probably not. More important than the issue of head coverings for us this morning. The thing that I want us to focus our time and attention and our energy towards is not wrestling through whether women should cover their heads in church or not. The bigger question for us is, is what is the point of Paul saying all of this to men and women? What was he trying to get them to communicate to one another? What did he kind of culture was he trying to build in the church of Corinth through this particular cultural practice? And the answer to that question is this, honor. Honor, honoring one another, honoring good structure and distinction 
but also honoring one another. The title of my message this morning is this, Watch Your Head. And here is the main idea for us. We honor a God-given structure and distinction by honoring each other. We honor God-given structure and distinction by honoring each other. This is what is in view for us this morning, above everything else, is the important meaning of honor and the culture of honor the church is to be. And so let's spend some time first unpacking this, this idea that God has given us structure and distinction. And so here, here, let's set a little bit of context here for us, especially if you're, you're new to First City, as we've been venturing through the book of 1 Corinthians for a time now. And one of the things that defined the church of Corinth was their lack of humility, was not a particularly humble bunch of people. In fact, they valued pride and status far much more than humility. They valued chasing after, let me be the important one, let me have the status in the church, let me grab after my rights, my freedoms, more so than humility and sacrifice. And it was causing divisions and cliques and fights and justifying sin and justifying freedom in Christ to use and abuse people. People were more worried about themselves than other people coming to know Christ and building people up in Christ. They were not a humble bunch. And so you better believe if humility was not present in these areas, it certainly wasn't in present in the dynamics between men and women. Men and women were not honoring one another. And if you think of the conflicts that we can experience as human beings, there are few more painful and more prevalent than the lines between male and female. There's so much conflict and pain that takes place in that beautiful design and distinction that God gave us because of sin and because of our pride, and this was happening in the church of Corinth. The men and women were not honoring one another. Rather, they were fighting and grabbing for status. And this sort of sets the stage for what the Apostle Paul is going to talk about here in chapter 11. Now, we've switched topics here. Up until this point, we've largely been focusing on the situation of meat sacrifice to idols and how Paul used that scenario to unpack this whole idea of laying down rights and loving other people. Now he's switching his focus. We've left that, moving sort of to a new topic, a new scenario. And from chapters 11 through 14, the primary context is the worship service. Because you see that conflict between men and women was actually spilling over into the gathered worship service, that place where God was to be honored and we were supposed to honor one another and love one another and serve one another at that very place where that should be the clearest and the most profound and prevalent, there was conflict. There was a lack of humility. And so Paul is going to speak into this situation specifically by drawing their attention to God-established structure, God-given structure. He begins in verse 11 too by praising them for their way that they have maintained certain customs. So, hey, you're not doing it all wrong, Corinthians. I want to praise you for where there is needs to be praise, but let me point out something. And as he writes, I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. And so the Greek word translated head here, kafale, means prominence or first position or authority. And if you think of the head of a business or the head of an organization, the head of a country is the one who has prominence. They're in the first position. They have the authority. 
We, we recognize this language even from our own concepts. And notice where Paul starts his whole instruction. Christ is the head of every man. Look, whatever else gets said about women in this passage, here's where Paul starts. Men, Christ is your head. Whatever else Whatever position you may have, whatever else this passage says about where you stand in relation to females and, and the order that God has, has constructed, never forget Christ is your head. There's someone over you. Christ, the one who Paul says in Ephesians 1.22, God has placed the head of all things. Christ is above all things. He's the resurrected and reigning king. He's the head over all. And so men, we are underneath a head. We have a king. We have a head above us. We're under authority. And then from there, Paul extends this structure of authority further. He says, man is the head of woman. Now, some of your translations, uh, we read from the CSB. If you're using the ESV or other translations, it may read, the head of every wife is, the, is her husband. And like with different passages, Sometimes there are different takes and different angles. The word used in the Greek is, is a generic male and female, but in some other places it can be translated as husband or wife. And so there's reason why some translations are different. But here's why I think the general fits better. Because the context here is not marriage. It's the worship service. It's the gathered people of God. And so to use the more general male and female seems to fit better here. And so Paul says man is the head of the woman. And what he is doing as he is referencing, he's calling back to the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And in creation, this is what we read, that God created man first and gave him certain leadership roles and responsibilities. One of those happens to be in marriage, but also in the church. Just as in family, man is to lead the home, the church is the family of God, and so God calls men to lead the church. They're called pastors or elders. And so Paul is drawing on this created structure that God created man first, gave him a responsibility of leadership in the family, in the church, and now he is setting up this, from that place, he is making a statement about the relationship between men and women. And so what he is saying here is that within God's structure of authority, where men are called to lead in particular ways, women are to come underneath that leadership and follow that leadership. Now, here's what Paul is not saying. He is not saying that every woman is under the headship of every man just because he's a man and you're a woman. He's not saying that. What he is saying is that within particular roles, within particular relationships where men are called to lead, women are called to come under that leadership. And the reason Paul can speak more broadly and use general terms of man and male and female is because those roles and responsibilities are far-reaching. Home, church, other areas. Those are, they're not just general and open-ended, but they are broad and far-reaching. So Paul is drawing attention to the fact that God created man first, gave him a responsibility, then created woman and called her to, to come under the leadership of man in that responsibility that God has given him. Then, the final link in the chain that Paul creates here, or he, he states here, is God is the head of Christ. This is important for what it does mean and doesn't mean. As our Nicene Creed teaches, God the Father and Jesus Christ are both God. They're co-equal. 
in power, in glory, in honor, in worship. In the being of God, there is no structure, there is no hierarchy. They're equal. However, within the plan of redemption, Jesus Christ submits to his Father and becomes human. And he enters into our world and he dies in our place and he suffers and he, and he becomes part of this creation in order to save us, in order to accomplish the plan of God in salvation. So in that act, Jesus Christ submits himself to the Father. And so in that sense, God is the head of Christ. As Jesus even told his disciples, I came to serve and do the will of my Father. So it's not in his being that Christ is submitted to, to God, but in the function of his role as the incarnate Son and Savior. Now, why is this important to, dis to distinguish and recognize? Well, one, because if we get it wrong, we get our Trinitarian theology wrong, and that's bad news, but that's a different sermon. But here's the implication for us. One, what it shows, what it shows is that distinction does not diminish dignity. Distinction does not diminish dignity. Just as God the Father and Jesus Christ are equal in essence and glory, Christ submitting to his Father in his incarnation does not diminish that in any way. Men and women, we are created and we have equal value and equal worth. And the fact that God has established a structure where men are to lead and women are to follow that leadership does not diminish any dignity with women in any way, shape, or form. If you believe that, then you have to believe that Christ is less than God. And again, your theology is off. And let's have a conversation about that. <laughs> That's important for us to recognize. Also, what is important to recognize is that coming under headship isn't a bad thing. If it was, Christ would have never done it. Christ submitted himself to his father as his head in order to accomplish the purpose of salvation. And so for women to come under the headship of men is not a bad thing. It's not a result of the fall. It's part of God's purpose in mission. And so we see in the example of Christ and God being his head, we see in many ways meaning for how we understand our relationship as male and female, co-equal in value and worth, and established in a structure that is for our good and for God's purpose. God-given distinction, or God-given structure. From there, in light of this God-given structure, Paul is then going to make some distinctions. In verses four and five, he writes this. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Because of the God-given structure of authority for Corinthian men to get up and pray and prophesy and put something over their head, they would be dishonoring their head. And for a woman to pray or prophesy and not cover her head would be to dishonor her head. The God-given structure creates God-given distinction. Now why? What do head coverings have to do with this structure and creating this distinction? That's a very good question. And there are like 10,000 books written on why that is. <laughs> and I tried to read them all this past week while I was sick. <laughs> there are a lot of attempts to try to get underneath all the reasons for this. But here, here's what we have to come to grips with. The text doesn't outright tell us. Like Paul doesn't point directly to all the reasons why this distinction is either clarified or blurred because of a head covering. And so what scholars and biblical commentators have had to do is try to get underneath some of what was happening in the culture and how a head covering signaled particular things in the culture 
that were creating problems in the church. And so there are a number of takes. I invite you to go and read some of these because there are multiple ones that aren't necessarily in agreement and they sound pretty, like this sounds pretty good. So there's some, there's some open-handedness here. But here's in general what people tend to think is what is happening. When it comes to men, some argue that for a man to cover his head was to bring attention to himself. And so if he were to get up, imagine if I were to get up and I'm preaching a sermon and the clothes that I am wearing are so distracting, you're not even paying attention to what I'm saying. Like I'm trying to draw attention to myself, not what I am saying. And so for a man to cover his head while he was praying or prophesying, which would have been done publicly in front of the church, was to draw attention to himself. Another argument that people make is that it was actually, that was a predominantly feminine practice. And so for a man to do that, in some ways he was signaling, I'm trying to break down distinctions between men and women. I'm trying to blur the line of that I'm a man and I carry a particular responsibility and role. And then in that, doing damage to the structure and the distinction. Now, it could have been a little bit of both. It might have been. In some ways, it's hard to tell exactly what, what was happening culturally regarding men covering their heads. But here's what we know. Here's what Paul says. That whatever that action was signaling, it was signaling that you were blurring the line of distinction, you were undermining the structure, and so don't do it. You are dishonoring your head, meaning you're dishonoring yourself, your own head, but also your head, God. You are dishonoring Christ. And this is why Paul sort of turns the attention later in verse 7 to this truth, that man was actually, man shouldn't cover his head because he's the image and glory of God. And so this is, again, he's going back to creation to establish his argument. What does he mean by this? Well, man, as created in God's image means that he bears attributes of God. God, there, there are ways in which we as human beings bear some of the attributes, not all of the attributes, but some of the attributes of God. And then we are the glory of God, meaning we are to radiate God's glory in the world through the mission and purpose that he gave us. So men, man, you are created in the image of God to glorify God with your life. That is your purpose, that is your mission, that is what it means to be made in the image of God. And when you blur distinction, when you minimize being a man, you veil the glory of God. Like if you draw attention away from the fact that I am a man and that in my masculinity I am called to glorify God, you actually diminish the glory of God in you. You're dishonoring your head and you're dishonoring your head. So whether that was a man pulling a hood up over his head to draw attention to himself rather than God and dishonoring God that way, or whether it was a man blurring the distinction between male and female and veiling the glory of God in him as a man, he was dishonoring his head. Whatever cultural things were happening here, however we want to understand the headgear in the, in the equation, the important thing to recognize is that the men in the church in Corinth weren't honoring who they should have been honoring. They weren't bringing honor to their God, and as we're going to see here, they also weren't honoring the women in that either. For the women, to not cover your head while praying or prophesying also dishonored her head. And so in the culture of the time, women would often wear a, a head covering, not a full veil, but a head covering, a shawl or a scarf, 
as a way to signify social dignity, that they were honorable women, and that there were some women who wanted to buck this tradition, and so they would essentially walk around without a head covering. And what this essentially signaled was, I'm available sexually. Like it was a way to hop on tender and swipe right, so to speak. And so if you can imagine a woman getting up to pray or prophesy, and the way she was dressed, it was like, I'm going out for a night on the town to try to pick up guys. You could see how that was a problem. You see how that would draw attention away from the glory of God and also be very disrespectful to the men in the church. Some women also would not wear the veil as a way to, again, rebel against certain societal structures, that there were distinctions between men and women. Um, some, Some scholars believe it was an act of protest against particular unjust practices, whatever it may have been for a woman to purposefully not wear a head covering in this situation was to blur distinction between male and female, and it was to dishonor her head, meaning it was to dishonor probably, at minimal, it was to dishonor the pastors in the room, those who were in spiritual leadership over her, and maybe even her husband or her father. It was dishonoring the men in her life that God had called her to follow. And so for a woman in the church of Corinth to not cover her head was to show dishonor. And this further distinction is also played out when, to, when Paul says in verses 7 through 9 that for a woman to not cover her head is also to sort of reject the purpose in which God made her. So Paul writes in 7 through 9 that just as a man is the glory of God, so too a woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from the man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of of man. And so let's untangle what he is saying here and be clear about what he means. So in the creation account, woman is created after man and from man. God puts Adam to sleep and he takes from his side bone and flesh and he fashions Eve from Adam. Now this does not mean that woman is not made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 make it very clear Men and women are made in the image of God. And also notice in the passage, in verse 7, it says the woman is the glory of man, not the image of man. So in no way is Paul diminishing that women are created in the image of God. But woman was created, at the, cre- the created order was created for the sake of, on account of man. What does that mean? Well, guess what, men? This is what it means. We're not sufficient. We needed help. Like Adam created perfect, in perfect fellowship with God, and God looked at him and like, not enough. You needed help for the mission that I gave you, for the purpose of of glorifying me in this world, you need someone to help you. And so on account of, for the sake of man, woman was created. She was created as a gift, a gracious gift to man. A gracious relational gift in which the relational capacity of man was deepened, but also for the purpose of the glory of God that it would spread throughout the earth, both through procreation and the mission of salvation. Woman was created as a vital, integral, indispensable part of the mission of God because men, we cannot do it by ourselves as much as we think we can. I've I've referenced this before, that in Genesis 2, 
that, that word helper or help meets in Hebrew is the word etzer, and that word means ally. It's a, it's, a, it's a word of strength. God is called the etzer of Israel multiple times in reference to he is their military might. And so that word of etzer, it denotes strength. It's not weakness. It's not passivity. It's strength. Women, you are a necessary, powerful ally in the mission of God. You are a gift. Your gifts, your strength, your wisdom, your talents, you, you're part of this. Needed, necessary, indispensable. And in that, in that, when you come alongside and follow that purpose and support the leadership of men, what happens? In what way is that glorifying men? Well, then his leadership becomes better. Accomplishing the purpose that God has given him and the things he's called to lead in, it actually happens. And the things God has called him to, he can accomplish. And in that, God is glorified. You play a vital role. You support, you strengthen, you help. Without you, the men in your life will never be able to lead the way God has called them to lead. They need you, absolutely need you. This is what it means for you to be the glory of men. And ladies, when you buck against this, when you push back against this, what ends up happening is you push back against the purpose for which you have been created. Now, this doesn't mean that, ladies, your entire life and your role and your job is just to run around making sure all the men in your life are successful to the detriment of yourself. That, that's, that's framing it too humanistically. That's letting culture sort of frame the, the terms for you. No, you've been called to a greater purpose, a God-given purpose, a God-given mission, that, that what you do is about glorifying God and, and strengthening what it means to join men on mission. Like your purpose isn't handed to you by culture, it's given to you by God, baked into the very foundation of creation. And so when you come underneath the leadership that God has put in your life, whether it be in the church, whether it be in the home, and you marshal all of your talents and your strengths and your wisdom, and you give yourself to see that they are supported and they thrive in that role, and, they're, and that they're, they're successful in that role, then you are living out a God-given purpose, and in, in this, the, 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 the purpose in which no one else can, can, can fill. It's no small thing. It's no small thing. Far greater than just saying, well, my purpose in life is to run around and make sure all the men in my life are successful. No. Don't let anyone ever tell you that's what that's about. So for the women to not cover their head, at least in this culture, what was drawing attention away from the role and the distinction that God had given them, whether it was drawing attention to themselves or whether it was saying masculinity and femininity don't matter. I'm going to just go it, on my, go it on my own. I refuse to come under the structure and the distinction that God has established. That's what was happening. That, that, that was what was caught up in either covering their head or not covering their head. 
And so Paul says, in light of, in light of the structure and distinction, in light of the purposes of God in bringing male and female together for mission, it is right in this culture, in this way, it was right for a woman to have a symbol of authority on her head. And then he gives like the ultimate mic drop because of the angels. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> All I know is this. Parents, next time you tell your kids to do something, they say, why? Well, just say, because of the angels. <laughs> There's no comeback from that, right? There's no way you come back from that. Now, again, there are, there are theories on what Paul means by that, but it's, it's beside the point. I think we're, it's clear that, that Paul is calling them to a way of living as male and female together in the church where they're honoring one another, honoring the distinction, honoring the structure. And so Paul is saying, men, watch your head. Don't draw attention to yourself, but live in the calling that God has given you. Be a man. Be a man. It's good to be a man. And live in that role and responsibility that God has given you. Take the leadership that God has given you and has called you to take. Honor him, honor yourself, honor the women in the church by godly embracing masculinity and living out that role. Women, watch your head. Embrace being called as a woman to the role and responsibility God has given you. Rather than bucking against the distinctions and the structure, live in the good of it. Where there are men who are called to lead you, get behind that leadership and support and encourage them because when they're thriving, you're thriving. Watch your head. Honor the God-given structure and distinction by honoring one another. This is what Paul is telling them. So what does this mean for us? <laughs> well, if you want to wear a head covering, great. Like, like honestly, I, I think... This passage would, would suggest and point to that this is a cult, more of a cultural practice. But hey, th there's nothing wrong with deciding, hey, this, this is a, a symbol that I'm willing to take. And so if there are those of you here that feel compelled because of this passage to wear a covering on your head, then that's coming from a good place. And so there is freedom to do that. I don't think you have to do that in order to honor this passage. But if that's what your conscience is telling you, then go ahead God bless you. And the rest of us, don't look at him sideways because that's coming from a good place. It's coming from a good place. But to answer the question, no, I don't believe that this passage says that we are still obligated because this was a cultural expression of a particular truth. At the same time, in some ways, I would prefer this situation to what we're facing today. Because what we're facing today, in many ways, it's far more complex and far more difficult than what they were facing. Because on the one hand, we, we, gotta, we sort of take this from two different directions, church. On the one hand, we have a culture that is bearing down on us with an intensity that's never been seen before. It's not just let's blur the line between male and female and roles and responsibilities. It's actually let's reject those labels altogether. Let's reject reality. Let's reject the created order. Like, like there is an onslaught and, a, and a, an attack on the structure and distinctions that we have never seen before. But here's also the reality we have to live in, church. Our theological tribe, we've abused this passage. We have abused this passage, and largely we've abused this passage by not honoring women. And, and so we're, we're, we're kind of caught between these two problems, and, and we're going to take shots from both sides. Just understand that. 
We're going to take shots from both sides. But for us to be faithful to this passage, but for us to, to, to follow God's word where it calls us, it means a couple things for us. First, it means we must honor, celebrate, champion the structure and distinction that God has established. Not apologize for it, not shy away from it, but celebrate it because it's good that our God created male and female, and that is good. It's beautiful, it's right. And those distinctions matter, they mean something. And so for us to, to stand in our culture when our culture is trying to deny reality and speak and say, no, this is good, this is beautiful, we're gonna honor this, is our first move. We're not gonna allow culture to shape us, to cow us, to, to cause us to go, hey, may, maybe this isn't really a thing and maybe this is old and antiquated. We're like, no, 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 no. There's good, there's beauty, there's purpose in this. And so let's honor and celebrate gender distinctions as good and right. And when we do that, let's honor male and female. Let's actually champion being a man is good. Being a woman is good. Celebrate those things. Don't blur and, dis and, and sort of muddy the waters there. Now, this is Paul's point in verses 13 through 15, the whole thing about hair. Like Paul isn't saying, hey, get out the hair ruler and measure if something's too long or too short. That's not his point. Because, okay, side note here, okay? Hair length doesn't always signify like masculine, feminine in the ways that we sometimes think it does because you go in the Old Testament, there's the whole Nazarite vow and guys wouldn't cut their hair. Doesn't mean they weren't feminine. The Spartan warriors, they used to grow their hair out and no one's gonna call those guys dudes man card on the table, right? <laughs> so we recognize that this isn't just a, like a, hair length is not just somehow like this like hard and fast rule, but here's what Paul's calling them to. He's saying, don't do anything physically with your body that's going to purposely blur distinction. Like if you're a man, be a man because it's good. If you're a female, be a female, it's good. Like your body, the, the way you carry yourself, the way you present yourself, it should be very clear who you are because you're honoring those distinctions, honoring that structure. And so men, be a man. If that means you got no hair, great, rock the bald. If your hair's longer, rock the longer hair. But the heart disposition is I have been created to be a man. That is a good thing and I want to live as a man. Women, be Female, be feminine, it's beautiful. If your hair is long, amazing. If your hair is shorter, great. The heart disposition is, I've been created to be female. This is good, let me celebrate that, let me be this. Honor this distinction. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to come up with this list of men do this, women do this, and try to spell out in super detail all the things, this is what it means to be a man, this is what it means to be a woman. You know why? Because those things are culturally bound, friends. Now, are there things? Yes. But what we try to do is we try to spell it out to the finest detail, and we forget that a lot of that is more cultural than universal truth. And so, church, I'm not interested in creating lists I'm interested in our heart and the disposition of saying we want to honor structure. We, we want to honor the, the distinctions and we want to celebrate men and women alike. If we have that heart posture, the details will work themselves out. 
Well, we don't, we don't need to worry about the wists. And so we honor. We honor the distinction. We honor the structure. There's also some opportunity, friends, because as our genderless, chaotic world eventually comes crashing down because you can only deny reality for so long, when that comes crashing down, there's going to be a whole world full of men and women who are going to have to learn what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And if they're not going to learn that in the church, where are they going to go? Like, like, like there's opportunity for us as, as, as we strengthen our, our whole and our faith and our trust in the distinctions and structure that God has given us, as we celebrate what it means to be man and woman and live in the good of those things and the roles and responsibilities that God has given us, we can teach the world what this looks like or we can help people experience the healing and the restoration that they're going to need. And so, and so, church, there is great gospel opportunity for us if we live this out and honor one another. And so I want to say to the men in the room, I, I want to call you to this. Honor the structure, honor the distinction by honoring the women in this church. Honor them. You are given leadership and responsibility. You are given strength. You are given your gifts to see them thrive, to lift them up, to encourage them, to see all the things that God has made them to be come to fruition. Honor them as women. Women, you honor the structure. You honor the distinction as you honor the men in this church. Look, there are some fantastic leaders in this church that are women. This is no way, shape, or form saying that you aren't called to lead in particular ways. But men, by God's design, have been called to step into leadership and carry the shoulder of leadership in some distinct ways. And it isn't easy. This isn't me complaining. It's just saying it isn't easy. Responsibility is challenging. And when you support, when you encourage when you get behind and use your talent and your strengths to see the men in this church, whether it be your husband or pastors or others, thrive in their leadership, you honor them. Honor the men in this church. Honor them for being men and celebrate that. Encourage them in that. Say, I want you to be a man, a godly man, and it's, that's a good thing. We honor one another. We honor Male and female. And, and here's another way that we do this. Like, <laughs> one of the ways that you honor people is by not pretending to be something you're not. I, like, I, think, I like to think one of the ways that I honor Jordan Spencer is by not going around to Bellevue, in Bellevue acting like a police officer. Uh, like, like, I don't walk around, like, pulling people over and telling people to slow down and, and arresting people on the side of the road because, one, I look foolish, and two, I'd probably get hurt. And, and, and Jordan, he honors us as an, an officer of the law by carrying out that role and responsibility in the way that he is called. And so when we, don't, when we, try to, we, we stop pretending to be something we're not and we stand in the role that we're called to be, we honor one another. And so rather than trying, men trying to be women and women trying to be men and being confused about these things, rather stand in what God has made you to be. Honor that and live out that. And see what happens. See, see, see what kind of culture is created. See the effect that that has in the church and in our homes and in the city. 
And friends, I want to say this. There's two things in, in conclusion here. One, our culture is trying to, see, trying to shape us to see each other's threats. You see someone who is a different gender than you, they're a threat because they could take power away from you or they could harm you. And I don't want to minimize the ways in which men have abused women. I don't want to minimize the ways that, that this has gotten sideways, but brothers and sisters, we've got to stop seeing each other's threats. Well, we're not threats to one another. We're brothers and sisters. We're made in the image of God. We're intended to glorify God. We need one another. This is Paul's whole point, that man isn't independent of woman and woman isn't independent of man. We need each other. We're gifts to one another. Like a church just full of men would be unhealthy. It would be terribly unhealthy. Just as a church full of just women would be unhealthy. We need one another. Stop seeing each other as threats and saying, I need you. We need each other. Here's the other thing. As we live on mission, friends, there are a lot of people who buck against gender distinction because they're just prideful and they want to tear down authority structure. But there are a lot of people that are confused because of trauma and hurt and sin. They've been broken by, they're not just sinners, but they've been broken by other people's sin and they've lost a sense of who they are. And so they're asking questions about gender identity and they're confused. Don't go rushing in, pounding them in the face and going, men are men and women are women. Because some of those people, they're crying. I'm like, yeah, I know. And they've lost touch with that. And so can we love people and enter into that? Speak the gospel. Jesus restores. Jesus restores our sense of identity as men and, men and women. He heals those broken pieces that other people have taken from us. That the part of growing as a disciple is growing and understanding who I am as a man or who you are as a woman. And that Jesus and the Spirit and the Word of God and the Father step into all of that. Can we love people there and be reminded that this isn't just about outright rebellion and people trying to tear down the structures of God, but there's, there are other things going on here. And so church, if we're going to be faithful witnesses in this culture... We need to take that into account. We need to be faithful in those spaces. Because that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus does. And in all of this, in all of this, to honor one another as male and female, that happens as we model our Savior. Jesus, who is equal with God, did not count equality with God something to be held on to, but what did he do? He humbled himself put himself underneath the authority of his father to step into our world and become a servant. And not just a servant, but a servant who died on a cross. A servant who died to set us free from our sin and set us free from death and set us free from Satan and all his wickedness. And in that, he modeled for us the path of life, which is humility. The path of life, which is dying to self and living for something greater than self and living that others may be lifted up. And so men and women of First City Church, we honor the God-given structure and distinction as we honor one another and we honor one another as we faithfully follow and model the love of Christ. Let's pray.